Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello, Justice Story listeners. My name is Sarah Steele, and I host a new monthly podcast called Let's Talk About Sects, where I talk about a different cult each episode. But right now, I'm here to share a little story. A couple in Queensland, northeastern Australia, had a young American relative, Michelle, visiting for a backpacking holiday. As Michelle was a nature lover, the couple sent her off to hike in the Daintree rainforest while they were at work one day. This was her last stop on the trip before heading home to Texas, and having flown in from the arid desert surroundings of Uluru in central Australia, she had a fantastic time exploring the contrasting tropical plant and bird life right by pristine white sandy beaches to cap off her holiday. When Michelle was back home in Texas, she noticed a bite on her cheek. She wasn't too worried, as she'd asked her relatives about the insects in the Dane Tree, and knew that there were some venomous spiders, but none that were lethal to humans. Over the next few days, it seemed to get worse, though, and was very itchy. One night, when she looked in the mirror, her whole cheek looked red and inflamed, and she vowed to visit the doctor the next day. In the middle of that night, she half woke up and found herself scratching her cheek when she felt the skin crack under her fingernails and a strong, tingling sensation. She jumped out of bed, flicked on the light, and looked in the mirror, only to see hundreds of tiny baby spiders swarming across her face and all through her hair. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this happened to start telling you stories of the old... There was this girl... It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello, and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. And welcome all of you listeners back. That's true. We do. I have a song for you. You can tell everybody this is your pod. It may be quite lengthy, but... We're really working on it. We are so (laughs) odd. We hope you don't mind. We hope you don't mind that we drawn on and on we swear we have a point we'll remember it eventually i feel bad though for what for not knowing the point you said i don't know the point we'll remember it eventually we do we do know the point we know promise right it's a journey we want to welcome all of you back to the show we do have um some new reviews from itunes including rain dog and evil brat forever you keep evil bratting it sounds awesome. And if you want to leave a rating or review for us on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it. Also, you can reach out to us on all of our social media, such as Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Just a Story Pod. Or you can check out our website, justastorypod.com. And that's where we keep our sources and the artwork and the links to the merch shop where you can buy the artwork on stuff, which is cool. If you're into that, then you can get on a shower curtain. 
You're really obsessed with the shower curtain. I feel like you're dropping hints for Christmas for me. Well, that only took a few months. Well, I missed a few other holidays. Fine. I thought eventually, eventually I'd get a shower curtain, but no, no shower curtain. Just sadness. Anyway, um, moving on, you can also find links to our Patreon page, and there you can become a sustaining member of our audience and contribute with all of your warm wishes as well as your warm dollars. Why are they warm? Don't know. Don't want to know. Not That's up to questions. you. Not a, not a problem. We're, we will accept any temperature of dollar. You can also reach out to us on the Urban Legend Hotline. The Urban Legend Hotline. That's right. The number is 512-222-3375. And when you dial it, it will connect you to a voicemail. And when you are connected to that voicemail, you may tell us your story. Any of your stories. All of your stories. Scary stories. Funny stories. Urban legendy stories fairy tales, whatever it is. You can tell us about that weird guy at your coffee shop. We'll listen. We know he might have been a prince in a past life. We believe you. Transformed into a beast? I mean, that's your opinion. <laughs> you better hope. So, Sam? Yes, dears? Back to the story at hand? Several of them. Eight of them. Eight? Eight hands. No. Eight tiny little spider hands creeping and crawling. It's right on your skin. Ew. Right now, don't you feel it? Don't you feel it? Okay, you're making me brush itchy. On your face, you're making me itchy. I'm not even really that afraid of spiders. It's really not one of my my top ten, even I would say. But uh, not a fan. So today we are starting with the ever so classic spider bite urban legend. Whoa. Okay, it really is gross. Oh, I mean, this is one of those images from scary stories to tell in the dark that I still think of so like personally the story doesn't affect me that much but that image the image is worse than the story as is so many so many that book just and they did re-release the books with the original illustrations by Stephen gamel and we are the proud owners of those for our soon-to-be (laughs) seven-year-old he now has two copies so this is a story that has been circulating around beauty school dropout hangouts since at least the 1960s. Oh, I'm sure. And the most essential part of the story is that it involves a girl that she has a boil or a bump somewhere on her skin and that eventually it breaks open and outrush baby spiders. Yes. Not as much fun as the Dr. Pimple Popper YouTube videos. What the hell is Dr. Pimple Popper? Like people watch people like pop big giant cysts on youtube oh no it's gross it sounds real gross it's worse in person so when i first moved here and jacob was still back in texas finishing up work i came out on my porch for the first night and there was a giant spider and it scared me to death and i stepped on it and tons of little baby spiders ran out and it freaked me out (laughs) i did and then the next morning you woke up and they were all having a party in my hair, complete with tiny little hats and solo cups. That is disgusting. <laughs> so, folklorists will tell you that this is a woman's story because they're terrible. I'm just kidding. No, it is a woman's story because it's primarily told about women by women. Two women. All women's. And that has to do with a lot of the importance women are taught to play a place on appearance and the horror they would feel if something was on their fucking face, like living on it. I'm sorry, but I would feel the same exact amount of horror. And you couldn't even have cover up. Watch me. Watch me cover it up. Your spider capsule. 
At the Just a Story store, you can now purchase Spider Bite Cover Up. In all shades of widow. Now, there are variations of the story. Sometimes the woman will have traveled to an exotic location for spring break, etc., etc., and she will come back and have this uh, lovely boil. I'm going to call it a spider capsule. I feel like that's the most accurate name. Spider capsule on her face as a souvenir of her exotic travels. So you have that, you know, ever-present urban legend, cautionary tale, don't go anywhere by yourself. Definitely. Yeah. Especially that spring break. No, that will get you spiders in your face. Might get you some creepy crawlies other places. Don't talk about this creepy. And of course, there are versions where she like picks at it. And in that story, the thing is don't pick at it. Mm -hmm. And then there are versions where she goes to the doctor and the doctor pops it. And then she has, it's dual shame because you have the attractive doctor who's popped your spider capsule and you had a spider capsule on your face. So one time, no, it's never happened. It freaked me out. I was, you should see my eyebrows right now. They're so high on my head. So intrigued. Now, this story has obviously been circulated widely for years and years. And there are people in the scientific community who have contributed to its perpetuation. Of course, there have been. Um, one of those was a Nobel Prize winning chemist named Carrie Mullis who claimed to have been bitten by a brown recluse spider in California, which laid its eggs in him. No. Well, yes, he did claim it, but no, it didn't happen because there are no brown recluse spiders in California. Notice he was not an entomologist. No, no, no. Chemistry, should have stuck with chemistry, Carrie. It seems that people have written to professional entomologists claiming that this has happened for years. And invariably, without fail, They'll be like, oh my gosh, you should have seen it. And they're like, did you take a picture? No. No. Did you did you save the spiders? Gross. No. And then there's also a popular version of the story that goes around where someone goes into the dentist because they have a boil like in their mouth oh, or that's something. that's so much worse. Yeah, but it came from spider-infested bubble gum. Oh, yeah, you're right. I have heard that. Yeah. And some people have written that in 2006, this went in to like several entomologists, this account was like supposedly someone's cousin in Australia. Of course. But it, it was actually published in a 1982 novel. So congratulations on your flair. And I'm sorry about your paranoia. No, it didn't happen. So you can see that this still gets passed around, still happening. I actually saw that it happened in May of 2017. There was a girl who had a spider emerge from her leg with images on facebook right of a bump not a spider so you know it's true but as much fun as this is to tell and as much fun as it is to try and convince entomologists that it's happened it seems like it may have roots that go far far deeper under the skin yes that's true so one of the likely culprits on where the story comes from or some version of it is the black spider or die short suspine by Jeremiah Gotelf. What'd you say to me? Jeremiah Gotelf. Goat elf. Goat elf? I don't know. No. <laughs> it was a novella that he wrote, published in 1842. And Thomas Mann was quite impressed by it. He says, I have just read Jeremiah Gotelf, whose short suspense I admire almost more than anything else in the world of literature. Gotelf is a pseudonym, which translates roughly to May God Help. That's not a goat elf. Goat elf. And it was a pseudonym for a Swiss clergyman named Albert Bitsius. Bitsius wrote about this. Sounds like he's saying bite. Bitsy, bitsy <laughs> or like bite us. 
Oh, I was thinking Itsy Bitsy Spider. That would have been better. This is considered an example of Berdemeyer period, which refers to a Central European infatuation, if you will, with common sensibilities. This is when we kind of get pastoral things in Flemish cows. Interestingly, the book was co-opted and used as Nazi propaganda during World War II. What wasn't? Yeah. Paul Remont stated, it's not hard to see why. One of the story's motif concerns the collective guilt of a community that has acquiesced to the evil plotting of one of its members. So it's like, you are all guilty by association. You will all be punished. So one critic wrote that Bitsius, or Goat Elf, produced narrative prose that has at its core a goal of proclaiming a right course of action or belief. So he was all about a moral. Perfect urban legend fodder. Oh, yes. And the story is set at a christening, quote, in the future, but in the future from 1842. Like flying cars? No, it's pretty much exactly the same, but just like... Tomorrow. Basically. So after the celebration, the characters are all relaxing, and a guest comments, I like the house extremely well. We, too, ought to have a house for a long time now, but we always shy off at the expense. But as soon as my husband arrived... He must have a look at this house. It seems that it would have a house like this. If I would have a house like this, I should be in heaven. But all the same, I would like to ask, and don't take it amiss, will you? Why ever that ugly black window post is there, and just by the first window, it detracts from the appearance of the whole thing. So we got some biddies talking, (laughs) gossiping. And I think that that is some not-so-subtle foreshadowing. Oh, no. Right? There's this ugly window right at the front of your house, and it just ruins the appearance of the whole thing. And then the grandfather figure tells the story of the Teutonic Knights, who were in the area, and as it passed down generation after generation, a nasty fellow named Hans von Stoffen built a castle on a wild bare hill, and the peasants who were attached to the castle had to do all of the building, and he showed no pity on his bailiffs and drove people on mercilessly. I don't see this ending well for him. No. Upon completion of Hagenhubel Castle, Stoflin decided that he needed an avenue of trees to provide a shady place to walk. Of course he does. Fine. But he wants it in a month, and no, you can't use those trees, those ones that are conveniently sitting there, he wants a hundred full-grown beech trees from the Muneberg, which is a steep hill. A three-hour journey over rough tracks. It's an impossible task. Something he realizes later, but he'd already ordered people to do it, and so he could not take back his orders. And so he was just going to have to, like, you know, kill them if they couldn't do it. Too bad he's going to have to kill everybody. Oh, damn. Yeah. Just because of the trees and male pride. Right. So many things. That could apply to. I mean, I feel like that's trees? A, trees and male pride. Both? Yeah. yeah. Definitely. It's basically everything Teddy Roosevelt did. Yes, all of it. And John Muir. So this is very convenient. Also, it's May, and that means that the crops need to go in so they can come out in time for winter, and everyone's going to starve to death if we go try to traipse up the tall hill and get the beech trees that this asshole decided he needed for his shady walk. Very ant and grasshopper this moment. Now, suddenly, the tall figure of a green huntsman appeared. No one saw him arrive. Ooh, mysterious. Quote, a red feather was swaying on his bold cap. A little red beard blazed in his dark face. A mouth opened between his hooked nose and his pointed chin, almost invisible, like a cavern beneath overhanging rocks. 
What's the matter, good people? He asked. Now, fun fact, a green huntsman is a kind of spider. Oh, okay. Like in the area, I guess? I don't know if I'm that good, but I do know it is a spider. And I do know that it doesn't build webs. Okay. So it's one of those wandering spiders. Yeah. Now, basically, the huntsman's like, oh, you need some trees? Cool. I'll help you. I just, a uh, small price to pay. Uh, let me see here what the rate is. It's um one unbaptized baby. I'm sorry. Copacetic? Awesome. Sorry. I, didn't, I didn't agree to that. Oh, what? He's gone. <laughs> so, quote, Scales fell from their eyes like a spray in a whirlwind. They scattered in different directions. Think it over, he says, or see what your womenfolk have to say about it. You'll find me here again in three nights' time. So go ask the women, see if you can have a baby. <laughs> Look, I know you guys are not the people to talk to about getting a baby. <laughs> Someone's got to have a bad baby. Yeah. So enter Christine, our, our heroine-ish. So she's a manic pixie dream girl of the 19th century, and she goes out to speak with the devil and make a deal with him because she has had enough of this domestic provincial life. So she goes and she's like, hey, I think we can work something out because, you know, ABC, always be closing. Just one problem. All the babies in town are baptized, so... That is a big problem. What are they going to do? He says it's fine. He's going to accept COD. So you better start having a baby. Well, not hers particularly, just anybody. Someone. Someone. Get busy. And just, you know, when they're born, just bring them to me. In order to seal their financial pact, I guess, their transaction, uh, he kisses her cheek. At this, he pursed up his mouth toward Christine's face, and Christine could not escape. Once more, she was as if transfixed by magic, stiff and rigid. Then the pointed mouth touched Christine's face, and she felt as if some sharp, pointed steel fire were piercing the marrow of the bone, body, and soul, and a yellow flash of lightning struck between them and showed Christine the green huntsman's devilish face, gleefully distorted, and thunder rolled over them as if the heavens had split apart. Priest is a pretty good writer. He was a really good writer. He wrote a lot of stuff. But good news. Trees get delivered. Good. Phew. Now we have to pay. Bad Bad news. Bad news. So a kid saw her make the deal, so there was really no hiding it. And, you know, he kind of spread things around, and they did kind of have to pay for the trees. So who's going to have to pay for them? Well, that's the question, isn't it? Someone could be you. Could be you. Me? Might be you over there. Like, somebody in town. Definitely not me. You don't have a baby? I'm not going to have one. (laughs) This raises so many... Uh, talking points about paternity and ownership, but whatever. <laughs> I meant physically. Yeah, oh, okay. As the birth approaches, a black mark appears on Christine's cheek, and once that mark assumes the shape of a black spider, her neighbors begin to avoid her. When she complains how her face burns and begs them to reconsider, they refuse. What was tormenting Christine did not hurt them. And what she was suffering was, in their opinion, her own responsibility. If they could no longer escape from her, they said to her, That's your affair. Nobody has promised a child, and therefore nobody is going to give one. You made this deal. You gotta have a baby and give it. And she's like, I don't got a baby, I just got a spider on my face. It's a cool tattoo, did you get in prison? Yeah. (laughs) It would totally look like a prison tat. So she has made, on her own, a deal with the devil. A spidery-like devil who has kissed her on the cheek and given her a mark 
in the shape of a spider. Yes. That's key. And now the entire community knows that she's linked with the devil and has this deal. Right. And they know that they're expected to give up their babies, but they didn't sign up for this shit. Okay. So what are they going to do? Well, she's going to take somebody's baby. Clearly. Beware. Beware the spider lady. So a baby is born in town and baptized very quickly. Good job. Phew. They're like doing it as yeah. they emerge from the womb. Um, we just have to stay on top of this baptizing new babies things and the devil, you know, won't get his due. But the devil is on to their game and sends spiders to terrorize them by sending them to attack the animals. Oh, God. So, yeah, minor flaw in the plan. The next baby's born. And the father, who's like, uh, we can't keep having this spider shit happen, kind of helps Christine but doesn't want anyone to know that he's helped her get the baby. He, like, dilly-dallies on his way to get the priest to get to baptize the Bastard. baby. He's like... You know, shuffling hands in his pockets. I just can't remember where that fellow lives. This town is so big, almost seven huts. And so he's dragging his feet to get the baby. And Christine goes and grabs the baby and makes off to the woods. Steals the baby. Steals the baby. She steals the baby. Yes, but instead of the huntsman who should have been waiting for her. What? The local priest is there. <gasps> Smart guy. No wonder he couldn't find him. Ha, <laughs> ha. You're off the hook, dad. He was in the woods. And he manages to get the baby away from her. But a spider comes to attack. And it's a spider unlike anyone has ever seen before. Now. You sting. Oh. <laughs> That's a J.R.R. joke. J.R.R. Jolkin. Sure. <laughs> Thanks for taking my nerdy joke and making it even worse. That's why I'm here. Literally. <laughs> That's like the only job I have. So the grandfather. Wait. You will recall our frame story. Correct. We had a frame story. Right. Betty's baptisms. Grandfather telling a story. Right. And there's a post. Mm-hmm. This odd window post. Ruins the look of the entire rest of the house. Just ruins the feng shui. Now, he says that the spider was captured and trapped in a piece of wood and held in there by a wooden peg. What? In that black piece of wood there? The godmother cried, starting up from the ground. In one movement, as if she'd been sitting on an anthill, she'd been sitting against that piece of wood when she'd been inside the room. And now her back was burning. Another guest asked, Hasn't the spider ever got out of the hole since then? Has it always just stayed inside all those hundreds of years? Well, actually, he says, the story goes that the people living in the valley remained pious for a while, but then they moved away from God and became arrogant and hard-hearted. But the wood which held the spider in place was a nasty reminder of the divine and the profane and the real effect that they could have. So one smart man decided to open the box. Not a smart man. To see if it was true or not. What happens? It's where the story ends. No. Yeah. He concludes, but whatever power the spider has, when men's spirits change, is known only to him who knows everything and allots his strength to each and all, spiders and mankind. It's a great little terrible story it's like what happened when he took the spider out you know exactly what happened or maybe he got too scared to do it or maybe he was struck down or maybe like all of these things any of those things whatever you're thinking is probably the thing you're most afraid of so we see this idea of the beautiful woman who is sullied by mark the house that is sullied by a single beam the dark wood that ruins the appearance of the whole house the dark mark that ruins her entire face the devil marking her spider shaped mark i mean definitely some links to you know our urban legend that we started with i mean of course it may not have a direct tie 
But maybe it's close enough. I mean, there's those, it's the themes and the ideas and what they represent. It's the sin against the community made manifest on her face. You know, very scarlet letter in that way. So some people speculate that the development of the association between spiders and illness may be linked to epidemics that struck Europe from the Middle Ages onward. And the spider kind of became this de facto stand-in for disease. Sure, because insects have for a very long time been associated with disease. And this fear of spiders is definitely more common in the Western European area. Oh, that's interesting. Where the phobia is strongest. Right. And I mean, we have to look at the story. And of course, we have Nobel Prize winning chemists saying that this has happened to them. So we need to take that away from him, right? Yes. Can we take it away? Yes, of course. Because can it happen? Doc. Well. (laughs) Ah. No, a spider. Okay, well, that's a start. We'll take it. But spider bites can cause things much worse than baby spiders crawling out of your face. Have you ever had baby spiders crawl out of your face? I don't want to talk about it. Okay, well, I just don't think that we can say authoritatively that they're worse. Okay, well, here, I'll tell you about them. So, in the United States, you really have pretty much two venomous spiders. Can you name one? I can name two. Oh, let's say one. Black Widow. The Black Widow. The Black Widow. Famous Black Widow. So, it also goes by the name of Scarlett Johansson. I've seen her. She's fabulous. And now that I'm hoarse, I sound like her. Just in that moment. It's gone. See, it's gone. (laughs) Damn it. Actually, the genus is called the Lactrodectus. Which in Greek means the robber biter. That doesn't sound nearly as sexy as Black Widow. Well, I don't think spiders are that sexy. Most of you probably know it looks like kind of a globular black spider with a red hourglass on the underside of its abdomen. So the male widows are small, multicolored, and they do not bite. Hmm. Because they trifling? That's it. So there are other spiders in this family that are very poisonous that have different types of red markings on them that aren't the hourglass. But the hourglass is so cool. Well, sometimes it'll look like a cherry. Sometimes it'll just be kind of like a red mark. These are really bad tram stamps, ladies, I have to tell you. So, when I was in college, uh, one of the bartenders at the restaurant I worked at had a black widow hourglass between her breasts tattooed. It's kind of badass, I guess. So they often do live around people. Because they live in like outbuildings or a wood pile, and in the winter they can't come into the house to get warm. That spider can be cold. That spider needs to go be cold. <laughs> well, back in the day, many people would get bitten when they went to the outhouse. Oh no! And so people would bring a stick to the outhouse to swipe under the seat, <laughs> and they would listen for the sound of a black widow spider's web breaking. Which they said sounded like paper crackling and fire. Huh. That shouldn't be an adventure. Like, it shouldn't be. You shouldn't have that many colorful descriptions of your experiences if you're just going be. Every day is an adventure. So black widow venom has many effects in invertebrates. So they're natural target. You know. Right. But in humans, it is a neurotoxin. So it basically just sets all of your nerves going crazy. Fun. And so remember, your nerves control everything, not just your sensation, which it does affect and causes severe pain, but also causes your muscles to contract and 
stay contracted mm. and spasm until they get so fatigued that you can't use them. Or it also affects the nerves that control like your blood pressure, heart rate, things like that. It's rarely fatal. That mostly happens in like infants or toddlers or the elderly. Mm-hmm. Famously, Harry Carey died from a heart attack after getting a Black Widow spider bite after being bit on the set of Red River. Like where I'm from. No. Not everything is about where we are from. <laughs> so some of the Australian species are more deadly, such as the red-backed spider. In this case, they do have an anti-venom, which we really don't use in the U.S. because the Black Widow is not as deadly. So how do you think you get this anti-venom? Do you milk a spider? You milk a spider. I was joking. <laughs> You milk a spider. Spiders don't have nipples. I know. You have to milk their fangs with a pipette. So you anger it. You might shock it. And you get your little pipette and try to suck up all the venom. And what do you do with it? Like how much do people have? Like how much is there in the world? I would imagine there's like a vial. And like one guy's in charge of it. Very like Dumbledore Snape set up. Well, because we don't use it in the U.S. But for example, like in the U.S. for a snake bite, anti-venom, they keep like a like one dose in the hospital. So you can start the treatment, and then if you need more, it gets shipped in. So like we had a kid that was bitten by like a, I can't remember, some venomous snake. It was years ago. And we had, you know, like the few vials to start. And then we literally had to ship it in from around the state, like via helicopter. Oh, my God. It survived. I mean, it seems. It worked. And what's amazing to think about is that in order for that to be protocol, it has to be like less expensive to go by helicopter yeah. Yeah. to get it than it is to keep it all like keep enough for a full treatment in one place. Yes, it is. That's crazy. Because if you kept a whole treatment and it's very perishable, mm. yeah, it would cost a ton of money. And think about this. Here's a fun fact: like it is someone's job to go milk the snakes and prepare. <laughs> you know, oh, like yeah. there's a guy who's in charge of that. That's milking spiders, milking I know. snakes. It's funny. So, what's our other big scary poisonous spider in? The U.S. Brown recluse. Brown recluse or the fiddleback spider. We had a ton of those in my house growing up. Like yeah. There always. are more of those in Louisiana, but we have both. Yeah, we're we lucky. Both. We're lucky. So their venom acts more like a snake's venom where it starts to destroy the cells it comes in contact with. So, you know, because like everyone's read Charlotte's Web. <laughs> yes. Some pig. No, and she, you know, and she explains to Wilbur... How she has to like tie the bugs up and how she sucks out all the you know good stuff. Yeah, I blocked that out. I just remember the grammar. Of course you do. Went on to read his sequel to that. You know, Strunk and White. What? The like essential grammar text, Strunk and White. That's E.B. White. That's the same guy. Okay. <laughs> that is a huge revelation for most people. You're looking at me like it means nothing to I you. I didn't know the book you were talking about. You don't know Strunk and White. How are we married? Anyway. Some pig. <laughs> So up into the 1940s, in the U.S., people only knew about the Black Widow. That seems like it's not a good plan. Seems like you need to be more prepared. And, you know, people in the Midwest, and of course as country doctors, knew about these painful deep ulcers that you could get and would take weeks or months to heal and leave a white scar. But it wasn't until 1957 that researchers started to notice that it was similar to brown spiders in South America, and they identified the bite as coming from the Luxoclasis reclusa, the brown recluse spider. So it was like 70 years ago it was identified. That's crazy. And these are not aggressive, and neither is the black widow, really. Usually, but they're everywhere. Like you can so accidentally yeah. get on them. Yeah, and so you just have to 
like accidentally crush them. You know, if they're in your bed, if you sit on the toilet seat, you know, things like that, that's whenever they bite. A girl that was on my cheerleading squad when I was in high school got bitten by a brown recluse and it like would not get better. Like it, it just got worse and worse and worse and it made like this huge, she had to have like a, a part of her leg taken out. Yeah, a lot of times that happens because they create these big necrotic lesions and so the inside of the classic lesion will be like dead tissue. It'll be blue and then it becomes like black as it completely dies. And then around it's like uh, white and that's just where all the blood vessels and stuff are no longer delivering tissue and then you have your red inflammation. So it's a red, white, and blue sign. Mmm, fun. I feel very patriotic. You should, you should. And a lot of times they get infected too. But it is treated with steroids and sometimes a Dapsone, which is an antibiotic and anti-inflammatory that's used for leprosy. Fun fact. Yeah, just a little tidbit for you. Might come into play. <laughs> if you're ever up against an armadillo. That's right. Armadillos carry leprosy or Hansen's disease. So usually it's deadly whenever it occurs in a place where the swelling can be a problem, like on the neck. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, unless you get a bad infection... They heal up with surgery and things like that. You might have a big old scar, and they can be pretty painful. There have been two deaths in the U.S. in the past decade. One of a man in Florida and one of a boy in Alabama. From the brown recluse? Yes. So we do have another brown spider in the U.S. that was imported from Europe. Thanks, Europe. The hobo spider. (laughs) Right? That sounds very American. Are you sure he's from Europe? So these have your similar lesions to a brown recluse, but it can also cause neurological symptoms and severe headaches. Yay. All the good stuff. It becomes deadly when the venom goes into the bone marrow and destroys all of your blood cell making parts. God bless. And so you lose your blood cells, your white blood cells, and your platelets, which are important for... Clotting. Yeah. Clotting. They're important. And clotting is good. Yes. Because you don't want to bleed to death. Yes, and that is what you do. (laughs) Okay. If you don't have them. It seems not ideal. Keep it in. (laughs) So one of the most venomous spiders in South America is the wandering spider. Is it a friend of the hobo spiders? Do they go on long road trips together and talk about their kills? No. It's a hunter spider, so it's like our green hunter spider. You know, it doesn't build nests. And his leg spans of five to six inches no, and can grow up to 13 inches. Nope. They have red bristly hairs. Now, these are very aggressive. So if you come across one, like let's say you see one in your house. You just let you him do? have your house. What would you do other than run? What would you do if you saw one? Don't try to step on it. But that's what most people would try to do. Might try to step on it. You might like. Throw a shoe at it. I would throw a shoe at it. Okay, but you miss. And and so it'll look at you and it'll rear up. No! Spiders should not rear. And bristle up its red spines. I want to see it happen. Not to me. So then what would you do? If it growled at me? Yeah. um, Scream. (laughs) So it does it again. Does it again. Um, It doesn't actually growl. I would... um, Try to hit it with a broom. You know what it would do? Grab onto the broom. It would crawl up the broom. (laughs) This has happened many times. I would throw the broom across the room. It would come back at you and block off your path. 
I feel like I'm losing a video game right now. You are. You are losing this video game. This spider will win. It is like half a foot to a foot large. No. No. So if you see when, like I said the first time, my first inclination is just like, let it have the house. It can just yeah, have it. That's what you should do. That's what you should do. They would probably like sell it. I know. Like it's, a, it's actually a real estate scam. Lex so, Luthor's in charge. So it has neurotoxic effects like the Black Widow, but it can cause complete neurological collapse or irregular heart rhythms and... Death. Yes. I imagine that when it bites, it like actually opens its mouth. Like it actually has like teeth like you think of like a person having <laughs> teeth and it's like... Ah. <laughs> That's what you can dream about tonight. So the most deadly is the funnel spider in Australia, which is related to the harmless tarantula. Are they really harmless? Like they eat, yeah. but they eat meat. But they, they won't kill you. But they won't kill me. But yes. they'll kill things. Oh, right. They're harmless to humans. Okay, that's okay. I was like, but they—they're not like vegan spiders or something like no, hip, no. hippie b- vegan peacenik spiders. Not that I know of. So the Sydney funnel spider lives in a 150 mile range of Sydney. It's super aggressive, and its neurotoxic effects are much worse. You can die 15 minutes after a bite, up to six days later. I feel like I've found this in one of Remy's books before. I think I've read this. Like he has like a deadliest predators uh, or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the final spider is in it, I think. Yeah. yeah. So Dr. Sutherland, who invented the anti-venom and it is basically a national hero in Australia. He said it was hard to milk the spiders as they were tricky and aggressive. And sometimes they would build a fine web around the side of the jar and it would run up quickly and escape. No. Or... It would blatantly march straight up the pipette. <laughs> Are these massive or tiny? Tiny, two inches. Okay, so they're so not- a pretty good size. I mean, it's a good sized spider, but it's not like a chicken like the other ones. Yes, it actually bit two of his assistants while no. they were milking, but thankfully it was the less dangerous female spiders. Golly! And there have been no deaths since the introduction of the anti-venom in 1980. All right, hats off to you, Doc. But, you know, it's so weird that these spiders cause such serious, serious problems, especially these neurotoxic ones, in humans, because we are not the natural prey. Are you sure? Are you positive? (laughs) Except for the real estate scam. (laughs) I'm telling you, that is a circa Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor real estate scam. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah, maybe it's just a fluke that the toxins they have are built for their natural prey and just happen to affect us or you know maybe and it's just a maybe they might benefit from that fear just like you know you have the you know all the different kind of mimicking animals and they benefit from fear from looking like a snake but they're really a caterpillar Mm -hmm. you know things like that is that a possibility if that was the case you know all spiders would benefit from those few very venomous ones because you have to get pretty close to see that little hourglass and in that way, it would give them access to the habitats of large animals, like pre-cultivated mm-hmm. yeah. fields in the case of humans. Like if they're, you know, whatever we offer real estate, obviously, yeah. they can have access to warm, safe environment. But it makes sense in a weird way. It's also interesting to note how much of a role cultural conditioning plays in the fear of insects. Oh, yeah. I mean, you said this is more of kind of a Western fear. Now, of course, a lot of the worse, more venomous spiders, other than Australia, are very much kind of the western parts of the world. True. And I think that 
Jeffrey Lockwood makes an interesting point about this in, a, in his book, The Infested Mind, kind of about why we are afraid of insects. Jeffrey Lockwood makes an interesting point about this in his book, The Infested Mind, which is a, kind of a treatise on why we might be afraid of bugs. And he's an entomologist that trained at LSU. LSU has one of the largest collections of insects in the world. Also birds. And birds. And a telescope. We have lots of things no one talks about. No, we only talk about sports. But he says that while there is some reason to believe that humans would have an acute attention to insects based on evolution, and that makes sense, like even for eating them, that makes sense. Right. The idea that we should be afraid of them is much further separated from our innate instinct. And it is a learned fear. And that's why it can vary so much depending on your particular upbringing and your particular culture. What trauma you had as a child. Exactly. So there are many different insect-related phobias. And they all have names I'm about to butcher. Oh, I can't wait. Yay! So obviously, arachnophobia. Seen the movie. Yes, it's a being afraid of. John Goodman. Exactly. Spiders. Or arachnids. I suppose it could be any arachnid. Like scorpions. <laughs> Remy corrected me today and told me scorpions had eight legs. So there's the most general, the umbrella term, which is entomophobia, which is not a fear of intimacy. It is a fear of insects. There is modophobia. Moths. Mm-hmm. Sphexophobia. Sphex. I have no clue. Wasp. Okay. Lepidoterophobia. I'm really bad in bug Latin. What is it? Fear of butterflies. Oh, that's frightening. Apophobia. Oh, that's easy. Bees. Bees. Ap- apiaries. Mm-hmm. Mimicophobia? I don't know. Ants. That's not what I would have guessed. I know. Um, but there are like as many insects as there are, there are specific named, cataloged, curated, documented cases of people being scared shitless of them. <laughs> I believe it. Now Lockwood, our fellow who has given us this clever discussion on cultural influence and fear of insects, said that he was surprised to learn in his research that people were so massively and totally afraid of bed bugs bed bugs is one of the things that people just like went on and on about of course but it's not something that's like visible even you know it's it's such a it makes it worse i guess in a way it makes it worse you don't know if you have them or not and you can't get rid of them i think that's some of it too yeah it's the inconvenience of them they're in your After he'd had some time to reflect, he discussed this in an interview, and I thought his response was interesting. He says, I think people's response to bedbugs is dramatically different than to mosquitoes, even though they both draw blood. And in fact, as you point out, a mosquito is most likely to leave behind a pathogen. I think it has to do with the details of the bedbug's interaction with us. And that detail involves the fact that they live continuously in our homes. Yeah. And not even in our homes, but in our bedrooms. Ugh, gross. And not even just our bedrooms, but our beds and our bed frames so it's a kind of invasion and that is so much stronger than our sense of an encounter with a mosquito the bed bug crawls into your bed at night and feeds on our blood and then disappears we associate the bed with intimacy and vulnerability and this is all happening at night without our awareness they are almost an insect version of a vampire tale and almost evoke that sense of creepy psychosexual invasion and i think We have a cultural response. It's just very different than the reactions we have to mosquitoes and other blood-feeding insects that don't have those particular habits or interactions. I like this guy's leap. This is the kind of leap we'd make. It is. (laughs) It is. I respect it so much. Must be Louisiana coming out. 
Let me wildly speculate on unrelated things that no one will correct me about. Yes, you have this kind of intimate sexual blood-sucking creature coming in the night that is almost impossible to get rid of. It's defiling something that should be nice. You know, it should be like a place where you go to rest and it should be your refuge. And here it is just coming in there all bug-like. And And then it also causes visible marks. Mm -hmm. It causes itching and... Discomfort. Yeah, and something others would see. Like at the start of the story. I think that it has a lot of the same notes as the spider capsule. Oh, yeah. But we can't talk about entomophobia without talking about a man who had one in such, such, such style. (laughs) Is this the Orkin man? It's not. One critic actually said he didn't suffer from phobias. He reveled in them. Oh, Salvador Dali. Yes. His paintings are full of insects. So Lockwood wrote about him as well, and he said, Insects became oversized, dreadful symbols of waste and destruction. He often depicted them as eating the main subject of a work of art. Ian Gibson later wrote that surrealists were very fascinated with praying mantis and other insects because of their bizarre rituals that seemed to have analogs in everyday life. Uh, a little castration anxiety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Freud. Oh, they all worship at the altar of Freud. We well, should of say course that. they do. Okay, so Salvador Dali was a surrealist painter. Right, I guess we should mention that. I mean, if you think of the melting clocks, this is the most famous. Which Persistence of memory. Does yes. have ants in it. It does. Most of his paintings have ants. He's very fond of insects, Dolly. Or terrified of them, or both. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. He Stop asking He revels him. in them <laughs> as he twirls his mustache. So, yes, that is another thing you need to know about Dolly. He has a very twirly mustache, and he was a surrealist painter. What is a surrealist, you say? What is that? Well, it's someone who paints in a realistic style, but does not obey the laws of physics, gravity, etiquette. Anything. Scale, proportion. Anything. Anything. Anything can happen. For example, Dolly's most famous sculpture is the lobster phone. I love the lobster phone. Which is a lobster phone. I'm sad you didn't get me the Dolly cookbook. I didn't know there was a Dolly cookbook. Uh, Really? I thought I hinted at it to you. No, you never did. I would have gotten it for you. Hey, Sam. There's a Dolly cookbook. There's a Dolly cookbook. Hey, Jacob. It's finally reprinted last year. Let's get one. So he's a wildly eccentric human being. He was Spanish. He was a very public figure. He was kind of... You know, he's a celebrity, celebrity. He was such a public figure and a celebrity that even Disney tried to work with him. Oh, he tried to work with Disney. Uh, I guess you could, you can say either side of the coin, which they recently like kind of completed the work, and it's beautiful. It really is. It's fabulous. Uh, check that out. Pause. Go watch it. I think it's six minutes of your life well spent. Definitely. But if you think of like the '70s rockers, if you think of like glam rockers and kind of their. Uh, external persona, and even Andy Warhol to some extent, you can kind of get glimpses of Salvador Dali. Oh, yeah, definitely. He started that. He did. He definitely did. And he was alive then and hanging out. But let's talk about how crazy Dali was about bugs. Please. So let's begin with the bed bug incident. So in 1926, Dali was lying in a Paris hotel. He saw a bug crawl across the ceiling. And from there, he made the ever-so-short trip to crazy I think he was already there. No, he was already crazy, but he went apeshit. I guess the ever so short trip to apeshit would be the more appropriate way to say that. You mean he bugged out? He did. A little bit. 
love it. He did. He did. So he found a small bump attached to his back and ran to a mirror to see if he could get a glimpse. He squeezed the bump with his fingernails to pull it off, but it wouldn't move. So he dug in, drawing blood, and there was still nothing. And this comes from Dolly's autobiography. It was formed as if it was formed by my own flesh, of it constituted of an inherent and already inseparable part of my own body. As if, suddenly, instead of an insect, it had become a terrifying germ, a tiny embryo of a Siamese twin brother that was in the process of growing out of my back, like the most apocalyptic and infernal disease. I made a drastic decision, and with a savagery proportionate to my frantic condition and my horror, I seized the razor blade. No, don't. I held the tick tightly between my nails and began to cut the intersect between the tick and the skin, which offered an unbelievable resistance. But in a frenzy, I cut and cut and cut, blinded by the blood which was already streaming. The tick finally yielded, and half fainting, I fell on the floor in my own blood. All over a tick. Well, it had been a bed bug for a minute, uh, and then it was a tick. A germ. And then it was something crawly. But he collapsed on the bed. A chambermaid came in and found him wrapped in a bloody sheet, and she immediately called the hotel manager, who immediately called a doctor. Dolly again. The doctor arrived, but everything had become clear to me before he came. It was neither a bed bug, nor a tick, nor a cockroach, nor a Siamese twin that had been stuck to my skin. All of this had existed only in my imagination. So what was it if it wasn't a Siamese twin? A birthmark. Of course it was. It was a little raised birthmark. Oh, Dolly. Oh, Dolly. So Dolly was convinced that his imagery and his paintings needed to be based on visually interpreted metamorphosis of reality. And he referred to this method as a paranoid critical method. That's healthy. Yes. And he began to develop this between 1929 and 1930. He cultivated, quote, irrational knowledge based on, quote, a delirium of interpretation. He sought to disassemble reality and recognize it in a way that revealed the mind's most secret workings. He wrote, I believe that the moment is near when a procedure of active paranoid thought, it will be possible to systematize confusion and contribute to the total discrediting of the world of reality. Oh, I think we're there. <laughs> I think this man was on to something. He systematically focused on imagery that he found disturbing or upsetting or perversely fascinating. And in that realm were bugs. Right, he's always got like rotting corpses, things with skin peeled away, lots of metamorphosis and twisting of features. But it's not bacon. You know, it's not scary. No. It's it's unsettling because it's beautiful. It's painted in a way and lit in a way like you would light a still life of flowers. It just happens to be a melting face. So, I always thought it was funny. I went to, when I was in London, we went to see a Dolly exhibit. Mm. And I went around line, there was an older man and we were just kind of talking with him. And he's a British guy. And you know, I was like, oh, I'm really excited to see this exhibit. I was like 17. And... You know, I was like, Dolly is like one of my favorite painters. And he was like, oh, young men always love Dolly. <laughs> I mean, he's right. Oh, I didn't say he was wrong. <laughs> There's something for everyone in Dolly. And there is nothing for anyone in Dolly. It's amazing. He is the ultimate paradox artist. Because it's super commercial and accessible. And then it's like, I don't know what it means. Like, no one does. He didn't. That was the point. And that sort of makes him joyous. So he uses many insect-based visual metaphors. And one of those is honey is sweeter than blood, in which we have like 
the references to like the insects emerging from rotten corpses, mm-hmm. which is probably an allusion to the Greek myth where the guy has to has offended Eurydice and has to kill the three oxen. And the bees come out. Yeah. Well, he's a beekeeper and then yeah. he get, loses his bees because he offends Eurydice. Anyway, probably <laughs> that. But and you also see them in you know, persistence of memory. And he, in a way, he incorporates them into his like surreal landscapes as a feature of scatology. Like they are the waste product in that universe. Like they are the dirt. Mm, yeah. Okay, I can see that. I mean, definitely ties it in with, like I said, like corpses and and that decomposition. I never find his corpses to look especially rotty, though. Oh no, his corpses are beautiful. His women are always beautiful, even if they're like half corpses or they're being eaten by something. Ah, <sighs> Gilda. Anyway, I'll say a lot of times, and he was married, and he he loved his wife like as much as he loved himself (laughs) and weird things and i was like so upset whenever they had that woman that came forward and had his um body dug up this just happened like a month ago i don't know this um, because she said that she was his daughter and i was like that's bullshit he loved her and and it was it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't bullshit she really was his daughter no it wasn't his daughter oh okay i'm relieved i was like i don't want to think that about dolly which i really don't care and i'm sure gilda would probably have been cool with it if it happened but you know hey whatever i think he would have required permission <laughs> he would have sought it so he uses many 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 different kinds of insects in his work including but not limited to ants flies grasshoppers moths butterflies insect eyes Walking sticks, stag beetles, maggots, bees, a beehive, caterpillars, silkworm moths, and more. Now, this may have all started when he was about five years old. That makes sense. It sounds about right. His cousin had shot and wounded a bat. Was he Batman? (laughs) Yes. How did you know? But Dolly was like very intrigued by this bat and he wanted to keep it so he takes the dying wounded bat and puts it in a terrarium that he has and he loves it loves the bat he loves lots of stuff that's dolly's a very loving fellow that's a good verb for him and so he kisses the bat before he puts it in the box and he just like loves on it and like i'm seeing like a very Lenny from mice and men kind of like moment here the next day he goes tootling out to go check on his secret bat that he's put in his secret terrarium and he realizes that the glass container has tipped over and his deer bat was, quote, bristling with frenzied ants. Oh. So then he's like holding his bat and he's sad and he's brokenhearted about his bat. And he looks over and he notices that there's this young woman standing by his gate and she's looking at him. And in his grief, he just picks up a rock and throws it at her because he doesn't know what else to do. And he doesn't hit her, but he does draw her attention. And she looks at him and he swears that he meant to kiss his ant covered bat to like show the woman how sad he was about his bat being dead but, but he bites it instead and no. ants get in his mouth no this says so much about everything and then he starts shuddering and re- with repugnance quote he threw the bat into the wash house and here we have dolly's genesis i guess the beginnings of dolly's intense association with love loss death and ants and women and women all of it <laughs> and throwing rocks at them throws rocks at all the things 
He also described what he called a false memory, almost like a daydream that he had when he was seven. He saw a child being bathed, like a cousin or something. And he swore that he saw a swarming mass of ants around this sore on a child's behind, like as they were going into the water. And when they would put him in the water, the wound and the ants all disappeared. And he was like, oh, shit, I am crazy at seven. I was like, oh, no. Now, in addition to ants, he also spent a lot of his time and focus working with grasshoppers. And this was a subject of great revulsion for Dolly. And he may have had another traumatic childhood experience that led to this association. When you are thinking of at least the grasshopper springs, horror of horrors, at the heightened moment of my most ecstatic contemplations and visualizations, the grasshopper would spring, heavy, unconscious, anguishing, and frightfully paralyzing leap, reflected in the start of terror that shook my whole being to its depths. Grasshopper, loathsome insect, horror, nightmare, martyrizer, and hallucinating folly of Salvador Dali's life. I am 37 years old, and the fright which grasshoppers cause me has not diminished since my adolescence. On the contrary, if possible, I say it has perhaps become still greater. Even today, if I were not on the edge of a precipice, and a large grasshopper sprang upon me and fastened itself to my face, I should prefer to fling myself over the edge rather than endure the frightful thing. The story of this terror remains for me one of the great enigmas of my life. When I was very small... And I actually adored grasshoppers. I would chase them with eager delight. I would unfold their wings, which seemed to me to have graduated colors like pink and mauve and blue-tinted twilight skies that crowned the end of the days. Grasshoppers became a thing of horror to me, and the sudden and unexpected sight of one was likely to throw me into such a spectacular nervous fit that my parents absolutely forbade the other children to throw grasshoppers at me as they were constantly trying to do it in order to enjoy my terror. My parents, however, often said, What a strange thing! He loved them so much before! On one occasion, my girl cousin purposely crushed a large grasshopper on my neck. Though it was eviscerated and abundantly sticky with loathsome fluid, it still stirred, half destroyed, between my shirt and collar and my flesh, and its jagged legs clutched my neck with such force that I felt they would be torn off sooner than relax their death grip. Still tonight, as I write these lines, shudders of horror shoot through my back, while in spite of myself my mouth keeps contracting into a grimace of repugnance mingled with the bitterest moral malaise, which to the eyes of an ordinary observer, must make my facial expression as sickly and horrible to behold as that of the half-crushed grasshopper which I have just described, which I am probably imitating, identifying myself with its martyrdom by its irresistible reflexes of mimicry of my facial muscles. In school, my fear of grasshoppers finally took up all the space in my imagination. I saw them everywhere, even where there were none, a grayish paper suddenly seen and looking at me like a grasshopper would make me utter a shrill cry that delighted everyone. A simple pellet of bread or gum thrown from behind me that struck me in the head would make me jump on my desk with both feet trembling, looking around me, mortally anguished by the fear of discovering the horrible insect ever ready to spring. He's a real stable guy. <laughs> I'm sorry. If somebody put a half-crushed grasshopper down my shirt, I probably would lose my shit. This is like you and lizards. This is like me and lizards. Like, I kind of feel you, Dolly. I have an enormous, innate, overwhelming, absolute phobia of little green lizards. Like the little anoli lizards 
that have never done anything to anyone. (laughs) Nothing to you. And I know it's stupid and I want to not be afraid of them. But I'm telling you, I feel like my spine is going to come out when I see them. Like, I feel like they're like a cartoon, you know, where somebody's skeleton jumps out and stands beside him. I've seen that happen to you. Yeah, Yeah. so I feel. And he was especially terrified of any kind of insect that could cling to you. That was the thing that drove him completely insane. But he found metamorphosis very inspiring. That makes sense. He was fascinated by leaf insects, bugs in his area that mimicked the appearance of leaves. And he accredits observing these bugs on a walk with the crystallization of his aesthetic style. He found them mystifying and, yeah, surreal. Surreal. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And the idea of one thing being another in disguise and yet being perfectly suited for its purpose, a visual twist that changes reality, that became his goal. That became everything he wanted to do. He wanted to make an insect that looked like a leaf but made sense as both. Or neither. Curiouser and curiouser. Yes. In 111 of Dolly's 1,176 works... There are insects. Notably, ants are often used to cover a face's mouth, kind of silencing or obstructing them. This is true for abstracted faces, like in his Daddy Longlegs painting. Daddy Longlegs is very similar thematically and visually to persistence of memory. But Dolly claims that a Daddy Longlegs is a symbol of good luck in Spain. I'll take his word for it. So maybe? I don't Really? Yes. Okay. Believe everything he says. Don't. You know, this distorted melty faces to statues, which, you know, he used the Venus de Milo pretty much anywhere he could put her. According to Espastali, Peri, and their study of Dalian symbolism, these are some interpretations of his repeated motifs. Ants, which he watched with fascination and repulsion and continued to use them in his work as a symbol of decadence and the ephemeral. Snails. The snail is linked to the landmark event in the life of Dali, his meeting with Sigmund Freud. Oh, it's so clear. Everything is so clear now. Dali believed that nothing just happens by accident. He was captivated by the vision of a snail on a bicycle outside of Freud's house. The link is then made by him between a human head and the snail. He associated especially at the head of Freud. So yes, his snail fixation also connected to his freud fixation yeah he would use like the kind of snail shape as kind of the cranium part of the head in some paintings and he also would use just snails like crawling on things Mm -hmm. in other paintings and even has a a sculpture of a snail with an angel riding on its back (laughs) that is the appropriate dolly response so many of his things make me do that Yes, he was very, very excited that Freud existed. And Freud later wrote, like, I used to think all surrealist art was absolute bullshit. And then I met Dolly. And I think he's kind of on to something. So you know how people always ask, like, who would you have dinner with if you could have dinner with three people alive or dead? Do you know my list? What's your list? Mark Twain. Salvador Dolly. It's the best dinner party. Like you want the best dinner party. You want the full experience. You don't want just like stuff. Well, this is what, well, I was gonna say three people, alive or dead, you would want to trip with. Ooh. Sigmund Freud. Yeah. <laughs> Salvador Dolly. And then just throw in someone Mark like Twain. Grover Cleveland. <laughs> no, why would you do that? Never. You don't just waste to see that what spot. Happens. You just don't to wait. See what happens. Do you not think Mark Twain and Sigmund Freud would kill each other? Yes. I would want to see it. In a duel. Dolly and uh, Teddy Roosevelt would be another great odd couple movie. Yes. <laughs> he died in 
He said the first time he ever met Gilda, he imagined her with her skin covered in ants. Oh my God. He's so fucking weird, y'all. I mean, he's just... So, yeah, Salvador Dali is a lot, a lot, a lot. And he would have definite opinions on this urban legend. In fact, I think he may have painted a version of it. So, you know, we have to ask the question. We're talking about bugs and spiders crawling in your skin, coming out of your skin. We know spiders can't. Spiders are not going to bite you and lay eggs. That's like not possible, right? No. Do they ever bite anything and lay eggs in it? No. Can their eggs grow in flesh? I don't think that that is their normal incubation. So there's just no reason to think that would be a thing that happened. Well, (laughs) with spiders... I don't like the way you're saying it so specifically and keenly. Like you have a secret that you're keeping from me that is going to make me squirmy. Probably. Are you going to make me squirmy? Probably so. I don't want to be squirmy. <laughs> so, you know, of course there's a reason that we're afraid of insects. There are a lot of nasty ones. Nasty ones that can cause lots of problems. But, you know, this specific problem we're talking about can happen. Eggs in the face? You can get eggs in the face. Eggs in the face. I don't want it. Eggs in your face is worse than egg on your face. With the New World Screwworm Fly. I don't like the sound of that guy. And it's called the Cochleomia omnivorax, the man-eater. Ah! Oh, here she come. Watch out, boy. She'll chew you up. Oh, Oh, that is literally what happens. She's a man-eater. So we've had a larval association with infected wounds... Reported since ancient times, the Old Testament being the oldest written piece to cite the infestation of an infected wound of a man by fly larva. Is that maggots? Yes. Oh, God. Yuck. Okay. That's what you think. So it's something called myiasis. And of course, that is what we're talking about in Job. My body is clothed with worms and scabs. My skin is broken and festering. It was like the Murphy's Law of biblical books. Oh, yeah, Job. Yeah. yeah. So these screwworm flies. Are they worse than maggots? Well, they are maggots. They're flies that have maggots. Oh, I don't know. I'm not spending a great deal of time thinking about it. New and old world screwworms are the only flies that consume live flesh as a primary food source. Some other screwworm flies are attracted by the smell of open wounds. Oh, come on. And lay more than one clutch of eggs at a time in the wound. A female can deposit up to 400 eggs at one time and up to 2,800 eggs during a 10 to 30 day lifespan. So these maggots have powerful jaws sliced through the tissue, allowing the larvae to dig close to two inches into the wound. Mm Mm-mm. And little spines on the outside of the screw worms anchor it into the tissue, making it very hard to remove. After five to seven days of feeding, they eventually crawl out of the animal or human Mm-mm. and fall to the ground where they then mature into adult flies. Or they die. They should die, 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 die fly. Oh my God, this is the grossest shit. It's really gross. Like, I'm sitting here shaking my head. Like, I know you can't see me, but I'm just like, no, 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 no. Ugh. So good news, they have been eradicated in much of the Western Hemisphere, except there was an outbreak in Texas in 1982. Not surprising. Oh, and one last year in Florida. Fun facts. So they do mostly occur in animals. Like, there were no human cases in the Florida outbreak. Thank God. Okay, you could have led with that. 
That's no fun. <laughs> but there is a case of a 12-year-old girl reported in 2008 after she returned to the U.S. from a trip to Columbia, and doctors in Connecticut had to manually extract 142 larvae from the girl's scalp. I'm so glad I did not eat before we recorded this. That's the story. Ah. <sighs> That's the the legend. It's just right. They're not baby spiders. They're maggots, worms. which I'm gonna call worse. They're, I mean, they're flies. Yuck! Yuck! How was your day, honey? Pediatrician who removed 140 maggots from a girl's face today. It's not always just kisses and stickers. <laughs> so you keep going. You gross. You gross maggots. I really, I think that's pretty fucking disgusting. I think they're gross. So the French surgeon Ambrose Paré in the 1500s was the first doctor to note that there was a beneficial effect of fly larvae for wounds. Fuck that guy. Now, of I'm course, sorry. This is not the screw worm fly. This is not the flesh eater. This is no. a different. This is going to be your normal bottle fly. His early descriptions emphasized the destructive nature of the maggot, which he tried to protect the wounds of his patients from infestation. Good for him. He's on to something, Ambrose. But there was one case where he observed a deep wound that had penetrated a patient's skull. And a number of months after the injury, a large number of maggots emerged from the wound. Just fucking kill me. Just kill me. Although a piece of bone the size of a hand was lost, the patient nevertheless recovered. And after this, Perret would allow maggots to continue to survive in wounds for extended periods in an attempt to facilitate Recovery. What the hell? So remember, this is before antibiotics. No, I don't remember. <laughs> we don't. I don't. It is. I promise. And so what's called maggot therapy. That's not a thing. Has been used for millennia. I don't care. Just let me die. If it comes to that, sir, just let me die. Aboriginal tribes used it. The hill people of Burma used it. I thought you were going to say of Birmingham. I don't know. <laughs> they might have. The Mayan healers used it. Anthropological research suggests that Mayans would soak dressings in blood of cattle and expose them to the sun before applying them to certain lesions, hoping to draw maggots. So I'm going to assume, based on my faith in humanity, that they're just not nasty people. That no. they had some some reason. There is some like weird twisted science to this. Oh, definitely. So okay. for centuries... The beneficial effect of maggot-infested wounds were noted by military surgeons who observed that injured soldiers abandoned on the battlefield actually did better and that their wounds healed faster when they came back infested with maggots. The first officially documented application of maggots was performed by John Forney Zacharias during the American Civil War. Uh, yeah, intentional. Sure, Zacharias. During my service in the hospital at Danville, I first used maggots to remove the decayed tissue in, in hospital gangrene and with imminent satisfaction. In a single day, they would clean a wound much better than any agent we had at our command. I used them afterward at various places. I am sure I saved many lives by their use, escaped septicemia, and had rapid recoveries. So you're Debriding the necrotic tissue, taking all the necrotic tissue away. They're eating the dead stuff. Yeah. Okay. Larvae produce a mixture of proteolytic enzymes, which help break down that necrotic tissue so they can be digested. But they also have antibacterial properties designed for self-defense. 
And they also ingest the microorganisms in the tissue. Oh my God, they're goddamn nature candy. I mean, they're like, actually, I can see why it works. Like, I'm so mad. <laughs> so, I understand why it works. It's still so, just let me die still, but no, ew. No, So they're, you know, doing the surgery for you, a little microsurgery, only getting the dead tissue. And they're also destroying all the bacteria. Absolutely, in perfectly as well. targeting the crap that needs to be gotten out so it can heal and putting down good stuff. So this was booming at the big turn of the century. This was something that a lot of people were using. And Y'all nasty turn of the century people. <laughs> but then, you know, we get germ theory. Okay. And everyone's like, e bugs and germs. Mm-hmm. So Which, then they, for the most part, good. Yeah. And <laughs> so then they developed a sterile way to breed these flies and get the eggs and larvae. Right, because they naturally grow in like shit. Right. Okay. And so that was a nice little surge once that developed. That's really actually when it kind of took off for half a second. And then we got antibiotics. And we're like, screw you, maggots. We have drugs. But. Oh, oh, wait, wait. Is some earth mother somewhere trying to bring this shit back? Oh, no, 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 no. See, as antibiotic resistance has increased, we're starting to have to find ways to fight these infections in skin, such as in patients with like diabetic ulcers. And like MRSA. Yeah. So what do we do when no antibiotics work and there's a bunch of dead tissue? Call in the maggots. Call in the maggot therapy. Yuck. I mean, Jacob, can you imagine just for a moment sitting beside me and somebody coming in and going, we've decided that you're going to need maggot therapy. Like, what do you think that experience would be like? Oh, I think you would freak out. And I mean, I've been on some, some horrible drug regiments in my life and been pretty cool about it, but that is just a bridge too far. Oh my God. So it's still used today. It's having a resurgence. They're trying to bring it back. Are they leeching people too? Yeah. Cry. Okay. <laughs> Different reasons. But you see what a visceral reaction it brings. I'm sure all of you have been kind of squirming for the last five minutes. As I've talked about it, because the idea of insects and bugs of some nature coming and crawling on your skin and eating away at the dead tissue, or bed bugs coming and biting and leaving marks and infesting your bed, gives me the chills. The technical term is the willies. The heebie-jeebies. Yes, even that. Or the jeepers creepers. No, I saw that movie. I do not have the jeepers creepers. <laughs> I saw that movie in high school with like my very first boyfriend and it scared me to death. That was the point. Right. And so we were at my house and I went to go use the bathroom and like was like coming out of my skin scared. And he went down the hall and like reached his hand in the door and turned off the light while I was on the toilet. He was such a jackass. He really was. But I almost died that night. <laughs> like trying to run out my pants around my ankles and I- that was also the point. <laughs> it hit my head on the, the tile in the bathroom. It was a whole thing. This explains so much. So now that's what that movie makes me think of. But yeah, other than that, I'm just like, ugh. Like, I feel like there's something crawling on me. And I can't shake the feeling. And there's something about the b- idea of bugs being like on your skin that is so uncomfortable. And under your skin seems even worse. And I think that's probably because we put a lot of cultural importance on not only the appearance of our skin, but kind of the function of it. And you see that in like metaphors or folklore throughout all cultures and throughout all of history. Implications are made that whatever your skin looks like on the outside, whatever your appearance, that's what you are on the inside. I mean, skin is our 
from a medical point, like our barrier to the outside world, our first line of defense against anything, bugs or whatever. But it's not just our defense. It's also like our, our medium for understanding, for perceiving. Right. So there's sort of this folk belief that whatever is going on with you inwardly shows outwardly. So you can see that in a very basic way, like with a evil character being ugly. Old hag. Yeah, and a beautiful young princess is generally kind-hearted and blah. But it goes further than that. When people talk about you being, like, red-faced, you know, you're haughty or stuck up or tense all the time. They talk about the a pallid face of mourning, you know, become sallow and sad-looking. You can be thin-skinned, easily annoyed. Or, easy to get into. Yeah, or thick-skinned, you know, tough. Yeah. yeah. You can have things get under your skin or really get to you or bother you. Like bugs. No, like mean words. Bugs. Is that a mean word? Yeah. You can shed your skin and kind of grow into a new person or learn a new lesson. There's a Japanese saying that the skin is the mirror to the internal organs. And there is a Buddhist prohibition against autopsy, which really furthers this idea or has in the past. There's really a strong belief that the external skin can be examined and the internal symptoms can be understood accurately. So Philip and Deborah Schoenfeld wrote a lot about this in their work on skin as a mirror to health. And they say that the skin is visible to the self and others. It can be touched by the self and others. It can express emotion or physical condition. We see this with things like blushing, flushed skin, or coolness. And skin has a significance in the metaphysical realm. There are religious terms and conditions for how and when and where and how you can show your skin and how much of it. Covering your head, wearing a burqa. Or like, you know, in some denominations, even men have to wear long sleeves or, Mm -hmm. you know, Mormon Mm -hmm. magic underwear, things like that. So they say that the psychoneuroimmunology. That's a fun word. Say it again for me. Psychoneuroimmunology? Yeah, that's the one. Of the skin is elucidating on how the mind can influence the skin and skin disorders. One doctor they interviewed says, it's not mind over matter, but mind matters. And that's true. You know, our mental state can definitely affect what our skin looks like. I mean, you can blush or become flush. And some people even can have like overactive blushing and go so far as to have like a surgery to correct it because anytime they have the slightest amount of embarrassment, everyone can tell. And Atul Gawande has a great essay on that in one of his books. My mom is super self-conscious because her nose is always red. Like no matter what is going on, and but it gets worse when she's embarrassed. It's because she drinks too much. You're That's tea- actually not it. You're teetotaling. <laughs> like, I was like, but she told me the other day she was thinking about having surgery. And I was like, mama... <laughs> So they do specify that belief and emotion in this sense, in this, in this setting that can actually influence the appearance of skin and skin disorders hinges on spirituality and not religiosity. So it's not actually following the prescribed method without belief. It's that kind of innate belief that makes it work. It kind of ties it more to that psychological aspect. Yes. And so for the purposes of this exercise, we're going to define spirituality as an attitude toward life, sense of life, relating to others, and seeking unity with the transcendent. It's a little mumbo-jumbo, but I'm going with you. Come with me. It's going to be fun. Pack your shit. So the art of spiritual healing in general, and skin specifically, 
involves rising beyond the polarities and dualities of conscious life toward the wholeness of unity. So one thing that they do think can influence skin and skin disorders are shifting easily between altered states of consciousness and normal alertness. And they point out that many shamanistic practices the world over can undo shift between these two states very readily. All right, and so this is something we've talked about a few times. We talked about the monks that can raise their internal and external body temperature in the um, spontaneous combustion episode. And it has been, you know, scientifically proven that you can train yourself to be able to control your parasympathetic autonomic nervous system. The nerves that control that, the ones you normally don't have control over, the ones those spiders can attack. Stop with your spiders. So obviously there is a placebo effect in spiritual healing. A placebo effect is a real thing. (laughs) It's a real effect. It's your psychological effect. In the typical healing sequence within a specific framework of a particular cultural and religious belief is first disruption of habitual frames of reference, then reframing the situation as a transformative process in pursuit of revitalization and healing. So by reframing the situation, it allows you to exert control or exert will and kind of accept the placebo, you think? Well, I think no, because it's not. (laughs) (laughs) You're so funny. (laughs) Yes and no. Yes and no. You do have to accept it. You have to buy in. Okay. But the actual effect is not like free will. It's subconscious. Okay. And they do point out that skin is a very good canvas for this to be enacted on because it's kind of the apex of this mind-body connection. You can see this in examples like breastfeeding, where there's a physical stimulation, both an emotional and a physical response. It's not done consciously. Right. So like the hormone oxytocin that's released whenever you're breastfeeding that actually allows milk to be let down from the breast is also the one you see called like the attachment hormone or things like that in Mm -hmm. Cosmo or whatever, because it's also the hormone that promotes bonding. So in that way, you can see that it really is like the fulcrum of this emotional, physical, tactile. uh, Right, because it's released literally from the stimulation of the breast. So there are other examples. For example, we sweat when it's hot and when we're nervous. It's the same physical reaction, but in response to different things. One's emotional and one's physical. Skin is how we perceive the environment and how we express reaction in that way. And it's also the separator and the connector. It's our barrier, but it's also our means for perception. True. So Anzu speculates that there's a thing called skin ego which is a psychological semi-permeable membrane that separates self from other but permits inner change is that a bubble it's your personal bubble it's your bubble i think it's your bubble remy told me i was in his bubble the other day are you shitting me sorry i was loving on you you're in my bubble he told you you were in his bubble (laughs) six year old's an asshole (laughs) he is so crotchety oh my god so Our skin is the way that we present ourselves to others. It's our outermost covering. And it has major psychological and social effects on how we view ourselves and how we view others. Persons with visible skin disorders have often been stigmatized or even treated as outcasts. Various skin disorders, such as psoriasis, leprosy, and vitiligo, have spiritual and religious aspects. So in Hebrew, the word for skin is pronounced the same way as the word for light. 
And this shows a connectedness between skin and light. And light has always been this metaphor for spiritual flow and beneficent energy. That's interesting. And if you think about it, skin is essential for a lot of very important holy rites in Judeo-Christian tradition. Anointing with oil is a religious sacred act. But in this, the skin is vital. You have to apply the oil to the skin. You don't anoint someone's shirt. There's also mikvah, which is a ritual bath used in Judaism, which is a very long-standing tradition. And it also makes me think of like baptism. Definitely. It's not just the skin that is cleansed, but the soul and the person as a whole. But it's by cleansing the skin that this is accomplished. And you see this in other cultures as well. The Anu women in Japan tattooed their body with the image of their goddess for protection. You can also see this in Islamic Iraqis who may tattoo a dot on the tip of a child's nose for protection against illness. In Thailand, there is a ritual called Krab Kru, which involves a religious ceremony with tattooing sacred text, followed by testing of the protection with sword swipes, which are performed by a shaman. Interesting. I hadn't heard of that one. So one of the major religious discussions of skin disorders that has existed ever is the discussion of leprosy. I feel like that's all we talked about in religion class. There's so much leprosy. It is rampant. And there are no armadillos in the Middle East. (laughs) Not anymore. So leprosy was seen as punishment for sin. And roughly translated from Hebrew, it means to be thrown down or humiliated. As some scholars believe that in biblical context, it was a disease more similar to psoriasis or vitiligo. We see the connection between divine healing and or punishment and leprosy in an event where Ardenae shows Moses God's power to heal or punish by telling him to put his hand inside his cloak. And when he takes his hand out of his cloak, he sees that it is, quote, leprous like snow. And then he repeats this process and his hand is healed again. So this is not only a manifestation of God's power, but a pretty cool diagnostic tool. Right, because it could be saying that leprosy was something like vitiligo. Mm-hmm. It's an autoimmune disease that takes away your melanin. So you become white. It's what Michael Jackson had. Supposedly. <laughs> Allegedly. But it seems like they used the word leprosy for basically any skin condition. Because there were different lesions that looked like completely different things. You have things like boils, discolorations, and sores. But, you know, be kind of a red raised bump. Then you have stuff like vitiligo, which is completely white. You have like psoriasis, which has these kind of plaque, purple, shiny lesions. Or even just different cut types of discolored baldness or breaking off of the hairs, which would be like a fungal infection. Now, interestingly, fabrics and homes could also have leprosy. Okay, so like a fungal infection again, like mold or something Spotted like that. Spotted mildew yeah. is what they refer to as like home leprosy. So in all of its many manifestations, leprosy was basically a punishment for sin. Persons with these conditions were considered ritually impure. And you see this, for example, with Levites who had skin blemishes and skin disorders and were not permitted to function as priests. When Miriam slandered Moses in Numbers, Ardenay summoned Moses and Aaron and Miriam to the tent of meeting and afflicted Miriam with leprosy like snow. Like the guy's go-to curse. It is. Now, leprosy in this way became especially linked with slander based on the story of Miriam. But Moses prayed for Ardenay to heal her and Miriam was quarantined for a week and was healed 
and rejoin the community. And also, fun fact, in Buddhist tradition, leprosy is associated with karma. Interesting. Now, Leviticus chapters 13 and 14 take some time to explain the care and keeping of lepers. Oh, please tell me. Not all of the technical terms are understood. The symptoms that are given allow us to kind of get a pretty precise medical definition of what's going on with them. The affliction can occur spontaneously. It can follow a furuncle. Furuncle. Furuncle is my gift to you this week as a word. You may say this. It's a real word. Yes, it is. Furuncle. (laughs) What is a furuncle? It's like a small boil. Or develop on the head or in the beard. And the first symptoms are swelling or a subcutaneous nodule, a cuticular crust, or a whitish red spot. But the crux of the matter lay in the degree of the cutaneous penetration which the disease had achieved. If it affected the epidermis or the outermost layer of skin and did not produce pathological changes in the hairs, the affliction was not regarded as especially serious. Yeah, I don't know why the hair thing. I mean, obviously the deeper the infection, the more serious it is. I don't know why the hair. <laughs> as such, it might consist of eczema, leucoderma or vitiligo, psoriasis, or some allied cutaneous disease. But if the affliction had infiltrated the dermis and had caused hairs to split or break off or lose their color, then leprosy was to be suspected. The diagnostic principle was also applied to disease affecting the scalp, where the affliction was spoken of as natek. All right, so I went to see this guy. He gave me freaking snow leprosy. Are you a snow leper? Apparently. You're what very if, rare. I know. And majestic. Thank you. Notice that my hair is not broken off. What am I to do now? Well, we're going to need to quarantine you for seven days outside the city or the camp. So, bye-bye. And then we'll come back and check you in a week. And if you look better, good news, only one more week of quarantine. A whole other week, but I'm fine. One more week, just to be sure. Now, there is to be no intervention of anyone else in seven days. And if we come back and check you in seven more days and you seem okay, you will be pronounced healed. Hooray. No longer a snow leprosy. Now, don't expect anyone to help you with this. You're going to need to pray and fast on your own and prove that you are worthy of God's divine healing. And once you've proven that, you will be healed. And then we can do the cleansing ritual, which comes after you're pronounced healed. It's funny because quarantine is super effective if it is infectious, you know? Should you be lucky enough to get to the ritual phase after two weeks of quarantine, you will get to do the ritual, which requires three ceremonies. One on day one, one on day seven, and one on day eight. The first ritual is performed by a priest outside of the camp or city from which the leper had been banished. Cedar wood, crimson cloth, and a live bird were dipped into an earthen vessel containing a mixture of fresh water and the blood of a second bird. What happens to the first bird? It becomes the... (laughs) So then the leper or the leprous house would be sprinkled with this mixture seven times, after which the second bird is set free. Okay, he makes it good. He makes it out. And then the leper may re-enter the community after washing all of their clothing, shaving their head, and bathing. But they may not re-enter their own home, their domicile, until this bathing, cleaning, shaving ritual is repeated on day seven. And then on the eighth day, he is to bring to the sanctuary oil and a sheep for various offerings, whole meal, purification, and reparation. 
the hole and purification animals may be commuted to birds if the leper is poor. However, the reparation lamb and log of oil may not be changed. Because the blood of the lamb and the oil are needed to daub the leper's right earlobe, right thumb, and big toe. And after this is completed, ritual's done, you good. You're clear. Now, they do represent reintegration into each level of society. The first is reentering the city or the community. The second is reentering your domestic sphere, your home. And the third is reentering the sacred realm through the rite of sacrifice. Oh, that's really kind of cool. It's I like that. Very poetic. Yeah. I like it. I'm just glad the bird gets free. <laughs> One of them. Well. It's 50% survival rate. No one liked that second bird. The first bird. Whichever one had blood. <laughs> so according to the Talmud, the laws of leprosy are given in great detail. It's reported that there is an entire courtyard in the temple itself on the northwest. There is a chamber of the lepers where the lepers remained after they had been cured and where they were bathed on the eighth day of their purification, awaiting their admittance and their anointing of their toes. And Josephus, who was both a priest and lived during the time of the temple, in his description of Mosaic law stated that it was forbidden to the leper to come into the city at all or to live with any others, as if they were, in effect, dead persons. He makes a sharp contrast between this law and the fact that there are, quote, lepers in many nations who are yet in honor, and not only free from reproach and avoidance, but who have been great captains of armies, and been entrusted with high office and commonwealth, and have the privilege of entering holy places and temples. So he's saying, like, we're, like, throwing rocks at these people, and in other places they're doing fine. It's interesting that you bring that up. He's like, why are we being so mean to the lepers? <laughs> I mean, guys, I'm beautiful. <laughs> now, in some accounts, lepers were stoned. People would not eat eggs from districts where leper- lepers lived. Lakish stated that it was forbidden to walk four cubits or a hundred cubits, dependent upon whether there was a wind blowing at the time, to the east of a leper. So you just stay a football field away from a leper? Depending on the wind. How would you know they were there? Cause, oh, because they have to cry unclean. Oh, well, that makes it easy. Like, if ever anyone approaches them, they have to scream out, unclean! <laughs> Did I not say that? I feel like that's key. Another account says, among the people of the East, that is, the ba- in Babylonia at the present time, if, God forbid, a scholar should be affected by leprosy, he is not excluded from the synagogue or the schools, since today the injunction, thy camp shall be holy. So, among other things, leprosy could be seen as retribution for the following. The, quote, shedding of blood, taking of oaths in vain, incest, arrogance, robbery, and envy, as well as benefiting from sacred objects. So, anything bad, basically. Yeah, and definitely slander as well. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, that's in numbers. Yeah. So, leprosy was assumed to be the result of a lack of hygiene in some cases, And there are also statements that it comes from flies. Interesting. But there are other accounts which speculates that it comes from children who are conceived of menstruate women, by definition, an unclean act. Oh, that's just a whole Yeah, we don't want to talk about it too much. (laughs) And so over time, it became just as likely that the issue be related to sin and impurity as it was to hygiene or maybe the other way around. But it was definitely bad. And you were definitely kicked out. I mean, you even have the almighty savior coming and literally curing lepers. Yeah. It remains a, a like a serious thing. Uh, the most marginalized community. 
yeah. if you will. Yeah, he is going out to the outskirts of town, and people are saying, what the hell are you doing, Jesus? Oh, my gosh. Oh, oh my, you. Don't do that. <laughs> but Remy also told me the other day, did you know that OMG stands for oh, my God? <laughs> so nowadays, when we say someone has leprosy, we are referring to a very specific disease. It's also known as Hansen's disease, and it is quite terrible <laughs> and deforming, um, and it has been pretty much eradicated at least except here well no it's still eradicated we have a leper colony <laughs> but we used to have a leper colony now it's a prison no it's the like international hansen's museum well it's also a white collar prison in the adjoining space what yes learning so much today and you know what it was a white collar prison while the leper colony was there oh yeah because they had like 10 lepers there for years yeah but there were people who were like incarcerated for embezzlement or whatever. And they were like, what do you mean I'm being sent to a leper colony? <laughs> so if you're ever in the bayous of Louisiana, you could also, other than going see a voodoo ceremony. Check out the Hansen's Museum. <laughs> slash white collar prison. Get your taxes done. Or not. So in one final example of how much the brain can affect the condition of the skin, I would like to recount for you a little story that Owen and Amir related about the psychosomatic hypnoanalysis with a medical student who got hives every time that he ate chocolate and believed he was allergic. So the medical student was age regressed into a trance of about four years of age, and he recalled visiting a zoo with his parents on a Saturday afternoon. But as it happened, Saturday afternoon was time to feed the snakes, and he saw a very large snake ingest a rabbit. Now, fun fact, next morning happened to be Easter. Chocolate bunnies. Yep, he had a chocolate bunny. And upon eating the chocolate bunny, he broke out in hives, and he continued to get hives every time he ate chocolate thereafter. Ewen provided suggestions that he would no longer need to develop hives when eating chocolate, and the medical student tested it and was able to process this recovered memory as an adult and tested himself by eating chocolate and no longer developed hives. (laughs) So it was a very interesting case of showing just how connected you know our skin can be with our psychological state and that kind of psychosomatic effects are that kind of brain body effects that you can get so i don't talk about one more weird disease oh good i love this one (laughs) so one person who has this disease that gave a description is joni mitchell Wish I had a river I could skate away on, Jenny Mitchell? Yes. Jungle line, Jenny Mitchell. Okay. Preach it, sister. She said, I have this weird, incurable disease that seems like it's from outer space. But my health's the best it's been in a while. Two nights ago, I went out for the first time since December 23rd. I don't look so bad under incandescent light, but I look scary under daylight. Fibers in a variety of colors protrude out of my skin like mushrooms after a rainstorm. They cannot be forensically identified as animal, vegetable, or mineral. It's a terrorist disease. It will blow up one of your organs, leaving you in bed for a year. Now, another patient named Sue was described by her physician. She says she's coughing up bugs and worms. She can complain these lesions were over her neck and chest and arms and legs that wouldn't heal itching 
and not in, and they worsened at night. She couldn't sleep. She couldn't think straight. And she said she saw fibers, these strange red, blue, and black fibers coming out of her skin. So one Austinite profiled, Travis Wilson. Now his mother was worried because he'd been getting worse. Fibers were coming out of his fingers, his neck, even his mouth. He wanted to transfer to the University of Texas and major in psychology. But he's wasting away. He can't eat. The fibers get in his food when he bathes. Black fibers seek out of his skin and wring the tub. He goes to the doctors and tells them the fibers, but they don't see anything. Now he wrote a blog and he says, Check out the forms to read all the cool things like morphing hairs, cotton white, and black pustules popping out of people's skin, and all sorts of neat physical and mental trauma that I've endured over the past eight months. Oh, so he's sarcastic too. Well, (laughs) he's a teenager. His mom was worried. She always has to assure Travis that no one's hacked into his computer, that bugs are not coming out of the screen, and privately she worries he's losing his mind. He sometimes sees black fans parked out in front of their home. Maybe he's the subject of a U.S. government experiment, he thinks. He also writes, Hey kids, from the same people who brought you the Gulf War Syndrome, now I present to you Morgellons, a new biological warfare study that our government has launched on our own people. Have fun with it. Just don't go and commit suicide, Junior. They'll screw up their neat and tidy data. He isolates himself, even from his mother. Afraid the disease is contagious. They stop eating together. They separate their laundry. They avoid sitting on the same couch. His worst fear is that he will contaminate her. When she goes out of town, he tears up the carpets and burns it, along with his clothes and their couch, trying to stop the spread of this disease. My God, he's Howard Hughes. Well, but poor Howard Hughes, but poor is not a good look. (laughs) All of these people are bugs and itching and things in their skin and popping out of their skin coming out at all times. I don't know why the black vans have anything to do with it, but it sounds like excruciating. Joni Mitchell said it would pop one of your organs and make you die for a year. It sounds terrible. Let's talk about where this comes from. So something But he said it's Morgellons. Morgellons. Yeah. Morgellons. And so let's go way back. Our way back machine. With Mr. Peabody and Sherman. With Sir Thomas Brown. Okay, fine. Him too. He can come. He's a British polymath who traveled to Montpellier in France in 1630 to take some medical classes. Now just to give a kind of framework what was happening in 1630 in France, the Huguenots had just been defeated by Cardinal Richelieu. Oh, at La Rochelle. Fun times. And to go along with this nice war, there was also a plague breaking out. And he went there on purpose. Oh, yeah. That year, 2,000 people died of the plague in Montpellier. So with all of this, with all of this going on, 40 years later, Brown decided to write about a different medical condition that he thought was odd in a letter to a friend. Hairs, which have most amused me, have not been in the face or head, but on the back. And not in men, but children. As I long ago observed that endemial distemper of little children in Languedoc, called the Morgellons, wherein they critically break out with harsh hairs on their backs, which takes off the unquiet symptoms of the disease and delivers them from coughs and convulsions. So the term Morgellons that Browns use is actually like a bastardization of the term Maquillon, which is a French term for like a comedon, um, most likely kind of like a pimple, like lesion bump a bump first one he spelled bump wrong basically morgellons is is wrong bump 
But then he's saying the kids have these hairs coming out of their back and they're like, it's making him sick. Yes. So this was described a few years earlier, most likely first in 1544 in Diseases of Infants by Faventinus de Victoris. There exist in little children certain living principles having the appearance of worms that are called by the common folk Jacontia. They settle especially in the muscular parts of the body, to wit, the arms and legs, the calves especially. Occasionally, they even congregate in the flanks under the skin. And in 1558, common name for this is the hair affliction, Polaris affectio. Well, I feel like uh, you just conjured a rabbit. It <laughs> <laughs> goes Harry Potter spell. For this reason, that by the protrusion and evulsion of hairs, some cases are saved. And after this manner, the shoulders and neck are rubbed with the hand, either dry or smeared from the milk pail, with milk still warm from the milking pail. The parts which are rubbed soon become rough with hairs, which are clearly seen springing out like a growing beard. Then, by means of bacon rind rubbed over hairs, or by a forceps, every single hair is plucked out, and forthwith they are cured. Okay, so he's saying, like, when people have these symptoms, you either rub it or you rub it with warm milk. Mm-hmm, kind of coat the back or the area. And then you put some bacon. Like a bacon rind. Like you... Like a salt. S- scour it. Yeah. yeah. And then the hairs pop out, and they're visible. Mm-hmm. And then you pluck them. You can pluck them out, yes. And then once they're all plucked out, they're fine. They're fine. They're cured. So this is written about several times in the 17th, 18th century. And then... Silence. We really don't hear about it anymore. But Jacob, the government wasn't doing experiments in the 1550s. (laughs) What the hell is this? Well, they were. (laughs) But... Not well with black vans and covert ops. They would say, come, we are going to experiment on you. If you say no, we will kill you. Yeah, that kind of happened. Yeah. So... At that time, a lot of people thought it was probably of parasitic origin, but it really just kind of fell out of being written about and really don't see any kind of modern medical text. But does that mean it went away? Well, so in 2002, Mary Liedo's two-year-old son broke out into a rash with lesions on his body. They took him to the doctor who diagnosed him with scabies, which is like a little bug that gets under your skin. And it causes extreme itching. And it's really easy to treat most of the time. You just use the cream just one time and kills them. They go away. But they can itch for a few days as they start to protrude from the skin. So Mary Lito applies the cream and watched his coarse hair sprung out of her son's body. Well, that seems like what's supposed to happen, right? Kind of. They usually don't come out in like a beard-like fashion necessarily. Unless it was a really bad case. So she did that, but he continued to worsen. And so she had a background in biology, and she went and bought a little microscope at Radio Shack. Radio Shack. <laughs> dates it a few years, right? And she started to investigate the sores and investigate what was coming out of them and found these little multicolor fibers. So alarmed, of course, she took her kid to the doctor, and they saw specialists and specialists, and you know they all thought it was either like a scabies that needed to be treated, which she did appropriately treat, But as she would get to the infectious disease specialist, they thought that she just had Munchausen's by proxy. Oh, God. That's terrible. Munchausen's by proxy is like where you have Munchausen's, where you make yourself sick, but you do it to your child. Right. So instead of making yourself sick, you make someone else sick so you can take that 
either caregiver role or you can kind of get that attention through them. The worst people. (laughs) I don't often make judgment calls, but the worst people. (laughs) So was she, was she Munchausen-sensing? Well, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. We'll never know. But she did not accept that answer. And nevertheless, she persisted, you say? Oh, yes. And so to Google, to Google Medical School. Your favorite. Oh, God. Where she came upon Sir Thomas Brown's paper from the 1600s. She's like, clearly this man knows more than all of you bitches. Yes. She did. Okay, good. And thus, she brought into the 21st century a long forgotten disease. Or did she? Because it doesn't sound like exactly the same thing. Because it's not. Okay. The cause of Morgellons was determined several hundred years ago. That's why they didn't keep writing about it. Because it's actually one of the first human diseases with an accurate cause described. Oh, God. (laughs) Aristotle reported on lice that escape from little pimples if they're pricked. Now, the Roman medical writer Celsus is credited with naming the disease scabies and describing the characteristic features. But in 1682, Dr. Etmuller examined these fibers of Morgellons' patients... And you can see in his drawings from the time, some are just like fibers. Some are just like, who knows what they are, just like little pieces of stuff. But there are very exact drawings of scabies mites. Ew. And then the Italian physician Giovanni Bonomo, in his 1687 letter, Observations Concerning the Flesh Worms of the Human Body. Ew. <laughs> Accurately describes the entire course of scabies, thus being one of the first people to describe any disease and its accurate cause. It's so unfortunate for her that she picked one that people were like, yeah, we got this. <laughs> well, so the, the hairs coming out of the children of Lagondoc were most likely scabies mites. How do you get scabies? From other people. Okay. And they, they really are little bugs. They're just little mites. They get in your skin. They burrow into your skin. And then they go away. You have to kill them. You have to kill them. But you kill them and then they're done. Yeah, if you don't reinfect yourself from loving on your teddy bear. So you have to to burn your velveteen rabbit. No, you just wash them or wrap them in plastic bags for a week. It's not that serious. Um, It's not a velveteen rabbit situation. It's not that bad. It's not (laughs) deadly. And so it's hard to say if Mary Leader's son had scabies or if he... It was a Munchausen's by proxy problem, or if it was misunderstanding, or if it was a combination of everything, which is honestly kind of my opinion. Yeah. It seems like there really was something there, and then she got convinced that there was more there, and then couldn't let it go because of her training. Yeah, so in 2002, she continues to persist. Goodness. When did she start? That year. Okay. She formed the Morgellons Research Foundation, an cool. online farm and chat room. Oh, God, no, that's not a research foundation. No. It kind of becomes one. Okay. The site becomes a meeting place for thousands of sufferers who would collect the hairs. You could see images of scabbed and bloodied arms, back, faces. So it's unlikely that all of these are just hard to treat scabious patients. That just doesn't explain away. The original Morgellons, that is answered. What is this? What is this new Morgellons? So, oh, oh my, you can find some answers online. (laughs) Oh, can you? Chemical spills. Okay. Bioterror. Okay. Alien abduction. No. 
That's on, not a medical diagnosis. <laughs> on coast to coast. Oh, well, they are experts at everything. A New Mexico doctor reported that a former CIA agent told him that the disease was caused by the French. <laughs> a botched government experiment, he says, that contaminated the water and then all Evian drinkers are at risk. <laughs> I am of the firm belief that this is the beginning of a worldwide epidemic. You know, if you rearrange the letters of Evian, it spells naive. That's just true. So it could be a nanotechnology that's spread by chemtrails and it's oh, used by the government Christ. to track you. Oh, Christ. Or the nanotechnology is being used to control us. As one YouTube video said, MIT, Harvard, and the elitists are forcing us to inhale and assimilate their nanotech that will allow them to run and control us like puppets without a string. Oh, honey, they don't need nanotechnology for that. They don't. He goes on to say they are the lucky ones because their bodies are rejecting it. Okay, so only those who were willing to resist becoming puppets are lucky enough to expel the nanotechnology. Go to YouTube. I made I made you watch some of the videos. Yeah, you did. I can't. I can't. Have fun. Go down the rabbit hole. Get your tinfoil hat. Yeah, like, please. It's fun. It's fun. But you should believe none of it. You should believe none of it. So we mentioned some people earlier. Not going to go back to Jenny Mitchell. <laughs> so Sue, who said she was coughing up worms and had these lesions and threads coming out of her skin... So she says that she finally found some relief when she went to see James Matthews, a family doctor, who said he himself has Margellans and offhandedly mentions aliens and conspiracy theories. Cool. And he puts his patients on a strict experimental regimen of high-dose antibiotics, anti-parasitic medications, and antifungal creams that can run as much as $1,000. They're also told to drink colloidal silver. They're going to turn blue. If they take enough of it. And mix diatomaceous earth into their food, and take a variety of herbs such as ginkgo biloba, as well as vitamins and home remedies such as cod liver and coconut oils. Now... Oh, he found himself a susceptible population and a business model. Oh, and you know, I mean, he only takes cash. Oh, shit. Which is always a good sign. And you know, you of course should buy the supplements from him. Because other people are just, like, watering it down. It's not the high quality stuff. And so he charges up to $500 just for a visit. Like Alex Jones? In his, like, male supplements? Oh, kind of. Hey, I've provided you 10,000 problems today. Here's a solution for seven of them. Pay me handsomely. So the Morgellons Research Foundation grew quickly and formed a letter-writing campaign, and they convinced Dick Durbin and Diane Feinstein... Who are both still sitting senators. In 2005, to ask the CDC to formally investigate Morgellons. And they were like... Which, sure, they did. So the Mayo Clinic was already researching it. From 2001 to 2007, Mayo examined individuals and conducted clinical research. And in 2007, they published their study in the Archives of Dermatology. They had found no evidence that Morgellons is biological in origin. Wow, that's really going to make me crazy now. And the CDC confirmed these findings in 2012. Right, so it's got to be the government. Well, interestingly, Lieto, after this came out, just kind of was like, okay. That's the one whose son had it? started it. She just kind of turned all of her research over to the Oklahoma State University and just kind of went away. 
That's right? really interesting. <laughs> she was like, insane. She's like, oh God, they're actually going to look into it? Fuck. <laughs> I don't think that was it. I don't think so. I think she accepted the findings. So the findings say it's non-biological in origin, but that could still mean it's space. Like, I don't understand how that was satisfactory. Like, what did she that... She didn't say that. That's what the nut jobs say on YouTube. Okay. On Coast to Coast. Okay. She thought there's some biological origin. I want to find out what it is. Okay. So if it's not biological mm-hmm. in origin, what is it, though? Like, that doesn't, that doesn't satisfy my curiosity. Well, so it's mostly cotton or other fabric fibers. And sometimes... Oh, no. It can even be peripheral nerve fibers that people are scratching and pulling out of their skin. Okay, so I'm imagining a scenario where someone has a bump. Yes. And they pick at said bump. Yes. With tweezers, razor plates, whatever else they have on hand to the point that it becomes an oozy bump. Mm-hmm. And then they put on their clothes, go yes. about their day, come home to check on bump because yes. that is probably third on their priority list for all of life. Mm-hmm. Check on Bump. Bump has weird shit on it. Make sure it's not a Siamese twin. It's not a Siamese twin. Yeah, Further okay. investigation required, they say. They pull it out. They look under the microscope, and it's these fibers. Oh, my God. And they're, like, all different colors, and it doesn't make any sense. And, like, that is not something that should be in my body. Ah. And then they realize that the fibers are pink, and they're wearing a pink sweatshirt today. No, they don't usually put that together. Well, the doctor that they bring it to in a little specimen capsule well there's the thing is they do collect these little fibers and you take pictures and have the kind of evidence and so one thing i saw that i just want to point out is that people are like oh it's like a mass hysteria mm-hmm. we talked about kind of mass hysteria and the definitions behind that in our uh, mad gas or mattoon episode and this is not mass hysteria this is a real disorder this is a disorder of a psychological nature. Oh, God. And that is the last fucking thing these people want to hear. That's exactly true. So on the morning of April 23rd, 2006, Lisa Wilson, the mother of Travis, who we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. or Austin Morgellon, found him dead. Oh, honey, I'm sorry. Doctors later found between 50 and 100 pills in his stomach. The end of police called the death a suicide, but Lisa Wilson believes that the pills in his stomach were not the result of an overdose. Travis took 30 to 40 pills a day anyway. Everything from vitamins to herbs to sleeping pills to worm medication for horses and cows. Yep, that'll do it. So CDC and Mayo Clinic confirmed the kind of established view, kind of what everyone thought it was. The vast majority of Morgellons patients have probably some sort of skin condition, some kind of dermatitis, combined with delusional parasitosis. Like Dolly? Exactly. Okay. So delusional parasitosis is a fixed delusion. So it means you can have it be the only delusion you have. You don't have to also see aliens and think chemtrails and stuff like that. It can be 100% otherwise, quote, normal (laughs) person. But have this belief that your body is infested with insects or some other creature. The disorder often results in formications. It's the medical term for this just feeling that Bugs are constantly crawling up and down your body and under your skin. One older diagnostic criteria for delusional parasitosis is the matchbox sign. What is that? Like a car? Like a matchbox car? No. So in this case, you could probably call it like the Ziploc sign. Oh, this is the the shit. This is the little, they collect it and they bring it in. Yes. 
Because they know you're not going to believe them. Yes. And I would I would say that. Like if someone told me they had this, I would say bring it in. You know, it's yeah. like bring pictures. It's not crazy. It's not crazy. It's some, what someone would ask. But it is what they all do. It's very, very common. So one other study of Morgellons patients also showed that many of them have high rates of like depression and drug abuse. And there's two important aspects of that. So with things like depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, other types of psychological disorders, you have a higher likelihood of having other kind of somatic disorders, like problems like delusional parasitosis or other things like that. But another important point is that many types of illicit drugs can cause formication. So and that's that the crawly feeling. And think of like the like coke addict on TV. What's he always doing? Scratching his nose. Yeah, it was like scratching his neck. Like yeah, 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 thing. the neck too. But neck I was thinking thing. the nose. <laughs> oh, no. That's not it. It's a very colorful exchange audience. I wish you could have seen it. <laughs> we were pantomiming. So these people are suffering from a disease, but the disease is psychological. But the problem is that in our society that a biological cause is just more palatable. Right. I'm not crazy. This is really happening to me. No, you're crazy and it's happening to you. (laughs) Pat, pat, they say. No, I mean, all joking aside, you know, I mean, it's a real thing. No, I mean, like, I have an incredible amount of empathy for people who have this. This is an episode that actually kind of freaked me out to do because I am a a chronic picker. And I, like, just so you know, if you're listening and you you feel this way and you're like, oh, they're making fun. No, no, we're not. Because, like, I've been afraid to touch this because I'm like, I may be... I may be swung to that side because I can, I can drive myself like really crazy about a bump. Like it really does make me crazy. It's an anxiety thing. It is an old habit. It's very hard to break. Not that you really want to hear about it, but it drives me crazy. It, It makes me very, very uncomfortable that I have the compulsion to do it. It makes me very uncomfortable that I do do it. And then if I have a place on my face or whatever that I've picked at, I really don't want to go in public. Like, I don't want to leave the house. And it does, it's incredibly affecting. And it's, you know, it's uncomfortable to talk about. And it's not a, a thing I'm like proud of or like about myself. But it's, it's a real issue that I deal with in a small way. I have an incredible amount of empathy for these people because I see how you can get there. All right. So, Dr. Villa Rodriguez wrote in the American Journal of Psychiatry. A belief is not considered delusional if it's accepted by other members of an individual's culture or subculture. Although this may be appropriate in the context of spiritual or religious beliefs, the scenario in which a widely held belief is accepted as plausible simply because many people ascribe to it requires a revised conceptualization in our current era. That is, with internet technology may facilitate the dissemination of bizarre beliefs on a much wider scale than ever before. In the case of Morgellons, the potential facilitation of factitious cases creates another troubling concern. So because there's a community of people out there who say, you're right, it's chemtrails or whatever, it makes it harder for people to accept that this is a psychological disorder which requires a different kind of attention. Exactly. And so, you know, we talked earlier about how our skin can represent our inner self. And how from even the original urban legend that we talked about, you know, we have a spider mark on our face or we have a spider bite on our face. 
or we have worms coming out or leprosy. Yeah, these can all represent our psychological state, just as Mark Allen's can. And so I think that whether we're the ones with the marks on our faces or the people who can see them, it's sort of our job to look beyond them and remember that people are much more than meets the eye. And that's not just a story. It's not just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen.